Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Food for Thought. Your table is now ready. Your servers will be Nate Geary and Bruce Nolan. Our specials today are cold, hard facts and fresh, hot takes. Can I get you started with... I'm sorry, just one moment. Can I get a little energy in here? Serving it up to you live on the Buffalo Rumbling Bitcast Network. I'm Bruce Nolan, that's Nate Geary, and this is Food for Thought. The topic du jour. I don't know if you know or not, but the Buffalo Bills have a regular season football game. Only a few days from now, in less than 48 hours, we will have the results of a regular season Buffalo Bills football game. And we've got along those lines, some things to talk about. Mr. Geary, how you doing, dude? As the kids would say, football's back, baby. And um, football's back, Bruce. We're going to get to talk a little bit about that uh, really exciting football game that happened yesterday. We're going to have an opportunity to talk to our Thrive Fantasy guest today, Tim Graham from The Athletic. We're going to talk a little bit about this new Bill Stadium. We're going to talk a little bit about the Steelers matchup. Uh, the departures of friends, old and new. Um, so we've got a jam-packed hour here for everybody. I'm excited. And let's dive right into it. Along with the Steelers and the stadium, we have other topics that start with S. And really, the most pressing topic of today, I think we can all agree, soft serve ice cream. Now, I was having a mm-hmm. conversation with my wife recently when she said, you know, I think I like soft serve better than real ice cream. That was the actual comment. I think I like soft serve better than real ice cream. And I said, okay, we need to do a better job of delineating ice cream mm. that is soft serve from ice cream that is traditionally scooped. So I think I'm just going to go with scooped ice cream versus hard. soft serve. Hard, hard versus soft. Cream. Yeah, hard it ice cream. It just sounds weird when I say it that way, Nate. I don't know why hard ice cream versus soft serve. But machine ice cream, right? The originated of the machine ice cream. And for me personally, soft serve ice cream, because of its lack of diversity in flavors, will never be as significant as traditional scooped ice cream. In traditional scooped ice cream, there are so many different types of things you can pull off because you have the ability of implementing chunks, which you do not have the ability of doing in a soft serve machine, lest the machine become damaged. So for me, 
it's pretty, pretty clearly in the span of soft serve inferior to other ice cream. My wife disagrees. Nate, where do you fall in this ever important debate? I fall directly with Ms. Nolan because she's going to be Ms. Soon if you keep taking if you keep taking up these terrible ice cream takes, Bruce. Okay. Uh, she is absolutely right about soft serve. And here's the thing: the thing I like about soft serve, I'm a big custard fan, so frozen custard. You go to any of the several amazing establishments here in Western New York. I know Bruce. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't have custard like uh, like they do in Western New York back in. Uh, in, in Bruce Nolan land, but let me tell you, um, there's a spot in Lackawanna called uh, Fran Seals, okay, and they've got a custard of the week every week, um, salted caramel, they've got a, uh, a we've got a, a comment in the comment sections about Abbott's, another fantastic um, soft serve custard, um, and here's the, here's the myth about soft serve. You can put chunks in it. Have you ever ever heard of a blizzard, a flurry? Uh, uh, what else are they called? Uh, Mix-ups, whatever you want to call them. Um, you add a little bit of Reese peanut butter cup, a little peanut butter fudge to a vanilla soft serve or custard. And we're talking about realms of texture. We're talking about creaminess that you're just not getting with hard ice cream. Now, listen, there are there's a time and place for hard ice cream. I... I'm not a hard ice cream hater by any means or any stretch of the imagination, but soft serve to me, I'm often way more in the mood for soft serve um, th- than I ever am for, for quote unquote hard ice cream. So um, yeah, man, I'm just, I'm just a custard guy through and through. I have been my whole life. We'll, we'll continue to be till I die. I think the preposition is really important here. I don't think you put the chunks in it. You put the chunks on it mm. because if it was in it, it would come out of the machine. Twist then you have to up, use bro. a you use a separate machine. That's a completely separate machine. Now you're introducing multiple machines to attempt to get a reasonable facsimile of the type of flavor profile that you already got from your hard ice cream. I'm just saying, Bruce. You a wine I'm just guy? Saying. You Say wine what now? Guy? You wine? Am guy? I a wine you guy? No, are you I'm a steak not really guy? a huge wine guy. Are you a steak guy? Did you know that there are different, different cooking sur- surfaces for different cuts of steak that are more ideal? Did you know this? I sous vide all my steaks. So for me, it's one size fits uh, then all. Who the is, the what is this sanctimonious ice cream talk when you are sous viding your beef? I'm doing the best thing for it. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing <laughs> That's the best. That's fair. I, I agree I'm not with here to argue with that. I'm efficiency. not here to argue I'm all about efficiency. So on the less efficient note, and quite frankly, a sad note, in the last hmm. week, you and I have come across two of the members of the Buffalo media market who have stayed with their current company, but have left to go cover, cover other teams. Marcel Louis Jacques of ESPN, who was just recently on this show stayed with ESPN is now covering the dolphins. Matthew Fairburn of the athletic, his partner, Joe Buscalia, who was also a guest on this podcast. He is still with the athletic and is, is going to cover the Patriots. Now, we're, Hey, when you're good, people want a pizza. And uh, I have said for a long time that I have lived in many different media markets across the country and that the Bills local beat reporters and the media we have locally in Buffalo is as good as any group out there. Mm. And it makes sense to me that they would be taking their talents to South Beach and taking their talents to Boston because when you're good, 
people want a piece of you. And so this kind of came up. So we want to make sure we say bon voyage to Marcel and to Matt. Matthew Fairburn was actually the first podcast I ever listened to. I shared this story when I was uh, on with Joe Biscaria and Joe and Matt for the Buffalo beat at the time. It was the Bills beat were the first podcast I ever listened to. I never listened to a podcast at all until then. Not just a Bills podcast, a podcast. The first podcast I ever, ever listened to. It's We're not bad luck. Chris Jenke says, please don't bring Sal onto the show, Bruce. We are not the kiss of death here at Food for Talk. I promise you that. We are not the kiss of death. But we wanted to take a moment and say bon voyage and good luck to two people who I think have done a tremendous job here. I know that, Nate, you were very close with Marcel. Matt Fairburn has done a tremendous job. One of the better long-form writers in this industry with Matt Fairburn. And we just want to take a moment and just congratulate them on their successes and wish them well in their new homes. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned uh, Fairburn, and I'll start with him. Fairburn was the very first guest I had on my uh, very first Saturday afternoon Sports Talk Saturday um he has been around for you know the the come up with Fairburn is is notable right like he is in the previous position that that we now see Matthew Perino in over at New York Upstate another good buddy of mine and another great um you know beat reporter on the beat and you know obviously Fairburn moves on from New York Upstate goes to the athletic um and continues to just pump out great work now you know due to his relationship and his employer with the athletic I wasn't able to to sort of have him on the show um, any longer with the frequency that I like to, to have Matthew on. Um, but, you know, the first couple of years on my show when he was at New York Upstate, he was one of my, you know, one of my greatest resources um, in terms of guys that I could have on as a guest that is that are both knowledgeable, um, can speak about the team, the, the intricacies of the game, and, and going beyond just, um, you know, talking about the game at surface level. And obviously Marcel is a, is a good buddy of mine. I'm going to miss Marcel a lot because – um, he's kind of my, uh, he, he was kind of the guy that w- we would do a lot of food exploring locally. You know, Marcel might go out with a buddy or go on a date somewhere and be there. And the first thing he is doing is texting me like, yo, we got, we got to come back here. We got to, and, and, and unfortunately for those, um, that are in the chat or here live, you know, there was a lot of ideas about him and I, um, putting together a, uh, a food podcast, um, and that was, is, is no longer. So luckily, we have Food for Thought, Bruce, that can tide me over um, and, and, and fill in the gaps that I'm losing from, uh, from losing my good friend Marcel to um, the worst sports city in, in the you know, continental U.S. I am I, I, most assuredly. By the way, I hope, I hope some of these, these chirpy Dolphin fans that, that are just absolutely obsessed with me on the Twitter box are – are watching this, which would make sense because they're 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 most literally obsessed with me. So um, yeah, I, I I'm not a big fan of Dolphins fans. I don't know if you knew this about me, Bruce. You know that's the rumor going around about you. Well, I certainly will tell you one thing: I am not up to the task when it comes to replacing any sort of semblance of Marcel Louis Jacques in the food for thought with the what would might have been as far as a food podcast with you and Marcel. So just rest assured, I am most assuredly not up to the challenge. I think one of the things that was interesting about this particular bon voyage message Mm. is that a lot of people on the Twitter box and around the interwebs in general were like, oh man, you know, we're losing these people. And it started to come up because they went to division rivals 
right? Because Marcel went to Miami and yeah. because Matt Fairburn went to the Patriots, it, it kind of brought up this, you know, well, concept of betrayal. Right. And I, I think I just need to make sure I, I get up on a soapbox for a brief second, if you will allow me here and cover one very important thing. Stop projecting your fandom onto professionals. Don't do that. So they very well may be fans. They very well may not be fans, but they have a job to do. And them as reporters, their job is to report. And so the rule of no cheering in the press box exists for a reason. And it's because the information that you need may not necessarily always be the information that you want. And in a lot of cases, people's fandom has to be put aside. And in some cases, the lack of fandom actually provides a better product and a better piece of content for the people who consume it. So for me personally, when I look at this, I don't think that my, my content that I consume is lessened or bettered by the presence of fandom in the reporter who I'm listening to because they've got a job to do and their job exists outside fandom. So it's really unnerving to me. It's really irritating to me when I have scenarios, when it's, I, I, I go through this, the Twitter box and I see, oh man, you know, he's not a real fan or so. Okay, stop, just stop. He's not you. Stop projecting your likes, your wants, your desires and your fandom on somebody else. They're professionals. We're fans. I'm a fan, right? Now I do my best to be as objective as humanly possible, but I have a non-professional rooting interest. That's it right there. That's my point. This is my line of delineation here because mm -hmm. I hate to break it to you. They have a rooting interest too. You know why? More people consume content when the team is good. So they want the team to win just like fans want the team to win. They just want them to win for a different reason. They have a professional rooting interest. You have a non-professional rooting interest as a fan. So stop trying to project your non-professional rooting interest onto professionals. I'm going to get down off my soapbox and I'm going to pass it on for a second and just see if Nate has anything to add to that before we move on. I think it's a, it's a weird conversation for me, Bruce, as a guy that um, my north end zone is that right? North end zone in high school. Um, when you got to the left corner, you could see the lights of, at the time, Ralph Wilson Stadium. I grew up playing football uh, in my front yard with the ability uh, in Hamburg that borderlined Orchard Park, like down the street on Southwestern, like four large suburban blocks, which are different than city blocks, four suburban blocks away from the stadium. So for me, um, it is a weird place to be in. I'm not covering the team, though. And I think part of this, Bruce, is the lines that sometimes social media tends to blur a little bit, which is the line between, you know, news and opinion and what, what sorts of media is out there and how we're consuming it. Um, and for me, the biggest, the biggest thing that I always have to try to re-explain to people is I am not a reporter. Um, I am not a break hashtag breaking news guy. Um, I'm an opinion guy. I write columns when I write, I, 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 I use my opinion, my experience, my childhood growing up, um, you know, in, in the town of Hamburg, which is again, you know, border bordering Orchard Park. And I, I take those things and that's what makes me unique in my position. Um, but my professional rooting interest 
um, and my my own fandom do intersect um, quite often, to be quite honest. But part of me also, um, the more I, I, I gain experience in the profession, realize that there does have to be sort of that, that Mason-Dixon line. There has to be that sort of very notable and distinct line in the sand. Um, it's not easy to always notice that line or to acknowledge the line, but it's important um, when you have a media position. So yeah, no, I, I, I wanted to just kind of, cause I think it's in the same breath of this conversation of not fully understanding when someone is, someone's job is to report the news and when someone's job, it is to give their opinion about such news. So just the, 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 these are things, these, listen, when you come to food for thought, you're not just coming for football talk. You're coming here to, you know, feel like you're in a Matt Perino University of Buffalo communications class. We want to be Food for Thought 200. We're a 200-level college class here at Food for Thought. Absolutely. And I, I said that I was going to do a podcast on the lines of delineation between hobbyists and professionals between content creators and media, between reporters. And we are blurring and the line, buddy. And at some point, I will do that. I, instead, I decided to do a musical this offseason. So that was my <laughs> that was my trade-off. But moving along, we have a game to talk about. And one of the things that I think is the most interesting thing about this particular game when it comes to the appointed opponent that the Buffalo Bills are going to face is that the Steelers are in this weird, they're in this weird pivot point in their franchise's history. They brought Ben Roethlisberger back for one year. They drafted a running back in the first round. This is a team that more so than potentially even the Packers is all in for this year. So the thing that we've talked about with the Packers this whole offseason was this whole last dance concept with Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams. You know, let's go one more show. Devontae Adams' contract's getting ready to expire. expire. Aaron Rodgers very well may be traded next offseason. One last dance. Very quietly... The Steelers are one last dance too. The problem mm -hmm. I have is that I think the Steelers think they're Super Bowl contenders, and I don't think they are, but they're acting like they are. They bring Roethlisberger back. They draft a running back in the first round. Their offensive line is four rookies. They're saying, okay, let's go all in for this year. Nate, are the Steelers Super Bowl contenders, or am I crazy? Because they're behaving like they're going all in for this year. I would say they're Super Bowl contenders in the year 2000. And not take this team and reverse all of them back to the ages that they were in 2000. No, I, what I mean is they're built to win in the year 2000. They are a running, turn around, hand the ball off, um, and let's win with defense type of team. And this is a team that is heavy up the middle defensively. They have one of the best front, uh, front sevens. In the NFL, they have Devin Bush back, who I think is one of the best young linebackers in all of football. I think TJ Watt is the best pure edge rusher right now in the game today as it stands. Von Miller no longer at the top of that peak. This is this is TJ Watt's show, um, and he, he was paid as such. They have severe weaknesses on the edge, and we're going to talk some scheme here um, at some point in this show, and I'm really excited to do that because I think we saw a little – preview of what's to come from the game on Thursday night between the Buccaneers and the Cowboys and how the Cowboys try to deploy their offense against one of the best defensive lines in all of the league from from top to bottom the Bucs are just the deepest and best defensive line this might be the Pittsburgh Steelers if not the second best 
they're in the top five conversation. So they're really strong at the middle defensively. And there are some serious question marks at this, at the, at the cornerback position for the Pittsburgh Steelers with Joe Hayden and behind Joe Hayden. Um, so it'll be interesting how that plays out, but uh, you mentioned it four rookies and Trey Turner, who is coming off of one of the worst seasons of his career was cut by the Los Angeles chargers. So we'll see, um, you know, what this offense is. Can they protect big Ben? Can they keep him upright? He is no longer Bruce, the big Ben that extends plays that doesn't go down, that is dragging defenders and making throws down the field. He's no longer that player. So if he's not that player, what are the Pittsburgh Steelers? And I think that's what most people outside of Pittsburgh are sort of collectively saying is what is this team? And I think saying they're a Super Bowl contender, I think would be out of touch with how teams are actually winning in 2021. I said before that Super Bowl contenders are people who, if they won the Super Bowl that particular year, the narrative that the media would drive around that would not be, oh my gosh, no one expected it. Because they're always going to take low-hanging fruit, right? If, if it's there, that narrative will come up. And if the team wins the Super Bowl and the narrative is not, oh my gosh, they came out of nowhere. No one thought they could do it. Then in that case, they're a Super Bowl contender. If the Bills win the Super Bowl this year, nobody is going to say, coming into 2021, no one thought the Bills could do it. There's plenty <laughs> of people out there who are picking the Bills to win the Super Bowl right now. So because of that, they're by definition a Super Bowl contender. So we got one more thing to touch on before we get to our guest, and that is, schematically speaking, what do you think you're going to see from the Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steelers? So I'll go first real fast, and that is I think that the things that the Bills do and want to do on offense fit in nicely with the weaknesses of the Steelers on defense, but the inverse is also true. The things that the Steelers want to do on offense fit in nicely with the weaknesses that I think the Bills could have on defense. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So if you see the same fast trigger on Ben Roethlisberger, if you see the same average depth of target really short, those are the type of things the Bills defense is already going to give you anyway. They're already going to give you the short passes, keep everything in front of them. So the Steelers don't necessarily have to adjust anything in order to do the thing that they wanted to do in the passing attack. On the opposite side, the things that the Bills want to do on offense, which is run a lot of 11, run a lot of 10, potentially even play more 10 this year than we did last year. I talked about that with Greg Tomset a couple weeks ago. But if you have two tight ends and you're this deep at receiver, you could potentially see 15% 10 personnel go all the way up to maybe 20, 25, 28% 10 personnel this year. And the Steelers get weaker and weaker and weaker at corner the more of them you put on the board. So that's what I think. I could see schematically from Bill Steelers. Nate, what do you think? Yeah, same thing we saw from the Dallas Cowboys. Listen, this I, I think turning around and trying to hand the ball off into this defensive line, Stefan Tuitt, big Notre Dame fan here on this side. Tuitt's one of the best interior defensive linemen in the league. I don't think turning around and trying to power run with Zach Moss makes a lot of sense. It's not their identity anyways, to Bruce's point, um, and, and how they're going to try to sort of go at this Steelers defense. I think you want to stay away from the strength, which is up the middle. Um, on the other side, Bruce, I think you could see a lot of one high safety looks from the bills, which is a little different than what we're used to seeing from their traditional two high quarters, sort of keep everything in front of them defense that, that they run week to week. And what is known as sort of Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott's base defense in that nickel formation. So I think the reason you do that is you force Big Ben to beat you deep early in this football game. You bring Jordan Poyer, you bring 
uh, Micah Hyde down in the box as as essentially an extra run defender and 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 assume that your outside corners and Taron Johnson on the inside can, can handle any potential deep shots down the field and behind them. Um, so and, and I think if you try to counter um, a lot of what Pittsburgh's trying to do, which is get the ball out early by getting some blitzes, getting some hands in, in, in passing lanes, um, and forcing Big Ben out of the pocket the same way you might try to defend Tom Brady. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense and can give them some opportunities to, to maybe make a couple of uh, turnovers on, uh, on the other side of the ball. The Bills like to run a lot of three wide. We like to run a lot of three wide. Here with us on the Thrive Fantasy Hotline, we have Tim Graham from The Athletic. Few minutes late getting to Tim, so I feel a little guilty. I'm a little two minutes late getting to Tim. But, Tim, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. No, happy to do it. I've been looking forward to it, and uh, I'm here for as long as you want. So you don't have to worry about getting me in at a specific time or me leave. Maybe I'll just stick around. I might be that, that house guest that just won't leave. Well, I certainly wouldn't complain by any means because we could use the insight. And one of the things that we could use the insight on before we even circle back to actually football is one of those things that I'm not really good at. I, I will openly admit that I am very disconnected from the Pagula Stadium conversation. I am very disconnected from it because I'm not a resident of Western New York. Because I'm not a resident of Western New York, a lot of those things, a lot of the things that are very salient to local fans of the team aren't as salient to me. Things like tax implications and things like that. They don't mean as much to me as they do to somebody who lives in Western New York and follows the bills and is a season ticket holder and if experiences physicality on game day. One of the things I wanted to chat about was the report from John Waro from the Associated Press in regards to a 60,000 60, seat open air stadium in Orchard Park. And one of the sub notes on that particular report was that there had been some discussion about potentially a downtown stadium, but the infrastructure was a real big shenanigans when it came to that. And I was thinking to myself how beneficial it was for a place like Indianapolis to be able to have the downtown infrastructure, to be able to have Lucas Oil Stadium there and be able to have Lucas Oil Field and have it as essentially a convention center. I have actually been there in the past for non-football related events because of the way it's set up. Now, the infrastructure thing is something that's a little bit new to me. When you were looking at the infrastructure, do you think there's a scenario where they could have pulled it off and it just would have been too much money? Or was it just completely off the table because we were getting into like fantasy land when it came down to doing it downtown? No, I, I think it's a situation that uh, the Pagulas in their research on these three sites that they did, there was one also out uh, near UB North, uh, that they took a look at, uh, that uh, it becomes too unwieldy in terms of the money. And they know that they're asking for a lot of public assistance on this. And so we've already seen uh, uh, the pushback from a lot of people in the community regarding partially funding a $1.4 billion stadium. So therefore, with every dollar that you want to add to that 1.4. And when you're talking downtown, it was as far as based on my uh, reporting, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 billion. You're going to get that much Ooh. more pushback from the public. And so they're in a position where they need to try to find that sweet spot where they can create a relationship uh, that 
where where they can get some help, but they're not asking for too much to the point that people say, beat it, you know. Uh, and the more people who do that, uh, then that's it's that much more of an uphill battle. But you know, I'll make a point. You just because you mentioned it as an example, for instance, um, uh, Lucas Oil Stadium in in Indianapolis. Yes, that's downtown. Uh, but it was right on the same footprint of the RCA dome. So when it come, came to infrastructure, you didn't have to do a lot there. Mm. To put a new stadium downtown where there has been no stadium before, you're talking about major, major additions. First off, you have to snatch up a lot of property. Um, that uh, is, if, if everybody knows that that's your intention, the price tags way up. So you have m- hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property you need to uh, acquire. You have things like parking garages that need to be built on ramps and off ramps uh, off of uh, the 190, um, sewage lines, uh, electrical, all those things that you need for a major municipal facility. Um, whereas going across the street from Highmark Stadium is a minimal, I mean, we're still talking millions of dollars, but a number that I heard was about, so, so you're talking about maybe uh, let's say $900 million in, no, all right, I'll even dial it back because I don't know the exact number. Let's say it's $500 million of infrastructure that you need uh, for downtown. And that's infrastructure stuff. That's, you know, that's stuff that the city or, or I'm sorry, you know, the city, the state would have to pay for um, regardless. Out in Orchard Park to go across the street in that ECC lot, $9 million. So you can see that where the appetite is and what such a lopsided investment you need to make in infrastructure in a new build as opposed to uh, moving one you know, just across the street. Tim, how about revenue opportunities? How much does that play into their appetite to potentially know that the larger the price tag, not necessarily the larger the public contribution um, so knowing that if they do want to do something bigger, if they do want to add more, um, you know, piece of the pie themselves in order to, on the other end, generate more revenue, because that at the end of the day is sort of what the sanctimonious stance of the league is, which is new stadium, better economy and, and more revenue opportunities for both the league and for the team. But I, there has always been this sort of myth that new stadiums, you know, bring more economic growth, but I think part of that might have a you might have a tough conversation convincing people otherwise, considering that a lot of these these local economies during the lockdown last year suffered greatly. The local restaurants that are around in Orchard Park, Um, you know, you have families that that have those private parking lots that rely um, on that yearly income. Um, So I I do get the the hyper local economy effect of this. But how do you balance all of those factors in when you're the decision maker in this process of what to do? Like, is there a reality here where the Pagulas are really going to be able to generate more revenue by building this? I don't know. I don't want to call it a cathedral because that's more or less what Dallas has. This is going to be kind of like the Walmart cathedral or like the Kmart version, right? (laughs) The uh, the chapel, yeah. The cha- um, it uh, it's it actually goes uh, opposite of of what that old line of thinking was about. Oh, what an economic engine this is uh, for Western New York, and we can't afford to lose the bills. This billion dollar company, uh, if it ups and leaves, we won't uh, be able to respond. 
but that's not the case. Uh, it's a, the money will just be spent in different places. It's the entertainment dollar. It will be spent at the theater. It will be spent at the bars. Uh, yeah, it, the money doesn't go necessarily to the people who park the cars in their front yards there in Orchard Park. Uh, it would just go to whoever gets that money somewhere else. Um, and the, the concept of public funding uh, of a stadium, it only works or seems to, seems to work uh, in major markets. So the largest, or I'm, I'm sorry, the smallest privately funded, all right, let me roll this back. Let me give yet a third attempt to, to spit this sentence out. <laughs> the smallest team-owned stadium in the NFL is Miami which is like 18. So that's really big, number one, but it's also a bit misleading because it's Miami. Um, similar to, you know, it's, that's a sexy market. That's a Super Bowl location. Yeah. That is out in the, and there was a lot of property and a lot of development that could be done around that. So you're also looking at Foxborough, uh, MetLife Stadium, um, SoFi Stadium, and what it, uh, Jerry World, uh, you're looking at these areas that have, investment opportunities for ownership that can be done around that stadium. I think it's pretty clear that in the 51st market in the NFL, even if as the Pagulas have tried to invest in downtown, we're seeing them get out of those, or at least yeah, some of very those quickly. endeavors. Yeah. You know, they're out of 716. They're out of the Blatt Brew House. Uh, they've gotten out of the Tim Hortons. Yes, they still have the hotel and that would benefit here or there. But um, that's another one of the harsh realities when it comes to uh, the idea of whether or not you want to keep the bills is the fact that Buffalo's 51st and you can't, all right, I know this is loaded for me to say this. You can't expect the owner to sink all a hundred percent of funding into a stadium and really not get much return out of it other than a place to play. And I know that that seems, you know, you could probably roll your eyes and say, yes, we can. And I would actually probably be of that belief. Yes, you should pay your own for your own stadium, but that's not what the market dictates. There are locations that will gladly uh, pony up the money. I don't think there are really any on the table here uh, with the case of the bills. Um, but I do think that it is, it is a false narrative about the only thing that would be missing from the state of New York is uh, taxes, you know, uh, uh, income taxes that you get off of these, you know, players. Um, and it's not really a lot. I mean, the car dealerships don't even really necessarily make much money. Real estate agents don't make a lot of money because Bill's players rent. As soon as the season's out, they're gone. Yes, coaches and coordinators and general managers, they buy homes. But, you know, you can't, there are a lot of things that you can look at and, and say, but it's really not that big of an impact in terms of the local economy. Um, so I know that that was a lot of word vomit there on the subject, and I don't know if I really clarified anything, but uh, there, are, there are a lot of misconceptions uh, regarding this. You know, I think I might bid to change the name of the podcast to Word Vomit because that's really what this whole show is about anyway. <laughs> so, the, Tim, I think my, my last follow-up to this before I, I pass it to Bruce, if he's got anything else on this topic, I, I think this is part of why we wanted to have you on. This is a fascinating aspect, uh, side show sort of to, to the reality TV show that's taking place in the real season here um, coming up soon. But how much, and, and, I, and I hate to, to, to make it sound like I'm making this political, but what 
what are the are there political ramifications about the change in governorship and, and having Kathy Hochul, a local, um, you know, Buffalonian taking over the highest seat in the state? And 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 maybe the secondary question is and, and maybe to go more from a hyper local approach is the rumors that this is really just, you know, all of the quote unquote issues surrounding this and the hardball that that the that the general public is being fed, the bills are playing really has to do with Mark Poland cars. Is there, is there some animosity between those two and from, from your reporting and from your, for your understanding of the situation and, and then that secondary question about Kathy Hochul's addition to the, to the governorship. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me take the Kathy Hochul part first. I think it's a big help for the bills. It's a big help for getting a deal done. Um, as we can see uh, in the immediate aftermath of Andrew Cuomo's uh, resignation uh, we saw a lot of little things getting done in terms of government doing its job. And we're talking about transparency, uh, freedom of information law requests being fulfilled, uh, different committees actually getting some things done because, you know, Andrew Cuomo uh, was, uh, he seemed to have uh, his fingers in everything and wanted uh, to slow things down and was always, you know, trying to uh, be the master manipulator. Kathy Hochul seems to be letting government uh, flow a little bit more. Uh, hopefully that leads to more meetings, uh, more constructive meetings. Um, I, I know that uh, prior to Kathy Hochul taking over as governor, there was some leaking going on in terms of uh, information getting out. Probably you could include in that the original story that really got everybody spooked uh, in Western New York regarding the Pagulas wanting a hundred percent taxpayer funded stadium, which was a very misleading report. Uh, Kathy Hochul has said that these things are never going to happen again, or these and then all of a sudden these people aren't talking anymore. So yeah, I think it's going to help. I think it's going to streamline things. It, things will probably happen not in public. I'm not necessarily in specific agreement with that. I would like to see more transparency regarding the surveys that the bills have done. Uh, I've, I don't think that they were done uh, maliciously or um, or there's any malfeasance involved, but I'd still like to see for myself what the reasoning of these reports are. I don't want to just take a spokesman's word for it, that this is the best place for us to put the stadium. And if there is going to be such a huge uh, public uh, publicly financed aspect to it, then we should at least be able to see it. I'm not saying that the public then gets to vote on it and then the whole thing gets bogged down and we're looking at Bass Pro uh being put uh, n never existing uh, in Western New York. So I'm not saying that uh, the public needs to uh, infiltrate the system. And because then I think uh, you need to let your elected officials handle it. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I just seem from everything I've heard uh, behind the scenes, uh, I've heard that Kathy Hogel's presence has been a positive. Uh, and the fact that he is from, she is from Western New York really helps. I, I think that a billion and a half dollars when you're talking uh, downstate, I don't know how many people really pay attention to what a, something a billion and a half dollars in Western New York. Yes, it's huge here. Uh, Larry mm, Quinn made a good point, point in one of those in Buffalo News article that you know the the Buffalo school system gets a billion dollars a year, not just once, but a billion dollars a year. So yeah, I think this plays much bigger in Western New York, where Kathy Hochul has a vested interest in getting this done. And I don't think she necessarily has to worry what they're saying in Albany or what they're saying in New York City uh, when it comes to this deal. And one thing that I also like to point out, too, unlike Ohio, where every team got a stadium over the past, what, 30 years, 
Indians got one, and then all of a sudden the Cavs got one, and the Browns left, and the Browns got one, and Cincinnati's two teams have one where they used to share a stadium. Everybody gets a stadium in the state of Ohio. In the state of New York, there there's only one that this that that the public's right. really going to have to worry about. It's not as though or California, where well, geez, if we give San Francisco money, then we're going to have to give San Diego money, and we're going to have to give L.A. and but no, you have this one stadium. Um, the Jets and Giants play in New Jersey. The Yankees and Mets were mostly privately financed. Yes, there were some bonds and things like that. Um, you know, what are, what are we talking in, in the grand scheme of things here? This isn't a repeated handout uh, for sports teams. I'm not saying for the Pagulas. I'm saying just for sports in general. I get, you know, we can throw in the Sabres too. Okay, so there's a, there's two arenas. Uh, well, one stadium and, and one arena. Um, it, it's not as though this is the, the thing that will that is going to lock down local governments or the state legislature to say, we can't keep doing this. Well, you don't have to keep doing this. That right there, that concept of precedent and not wanting to overextend yourself and then being tied down to a specific precedent actually ties in with something you said earlier, which was this is a negotiation. And that's one of the things that I think that gets lost in this whole conversation is this is a negotiation just like lots of other negotiations. And that's specifically what I want to ask you about in the final stadium version of this question. And then if it's cool with you, you, you mistakenly offered to stay with us. So we're going to keep you all the way to the end. So after we're done with this, I'll do an ad read. We'll be done. With Brevity the is not thing, my strength, Bruce. And then Brevity, we're just going to go. It takes me a long time to get, get my, to make my point. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew that, uh, I, I got a chuckle when you asked me to come on for 10 minutes. Well, you know what? It is, it is fortunate then for us that you're one of the best long form writers I've ever, I've ever read. So that works out well. It's the only way I can think obviously I can't, I can't spit out a, a, a quick and effective sentence. So I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about negotiation because that's ultimately what this is. So People are familiar with negotiations. They do it all the time. They do it with their spouses. They do it with their car dealerships. And is it really as simple as all the same tactics, all of the same psychological factors are at play with this particular negotiation as people would be used to seeing in their day-to-day -day lives? Is it really all the same rules or are there specifically different rules, psychological, sociological factors at play in this negotiation as opposed to one you might have with your spouse over what's for dinner? Well, I think the car dealership is the one we might want to stick with because when you're because the point I was going to make is that there that when it comes to the stadium or this particular case the the Buffalo Bills uh there are a lot of there's a lot of scar tissue uh when it comes to the Bills someday perhaps leaving and people were led to believe that uh the Pagulas were keeping the Bills here forever you know, we heard the people crying on WGR calling into the shows. It was one of my biggest honors to to break that story, to say that the, the Pagulas have been selected as the next owners of the Bills and you're going to keep your team. And they said all those things, too. Where the Bills aren't going anywhere. And I still believe that. But in these. In these negotiations, the threat of departure is now back. And that brings a lot of anguish, a lot of PTSD. Uh, not to make light of actual PTSD, but I do think that there's some actual, some literal, literal aspect to that. People hate the Pagulas right now because of the Sabres. 
Uh, and because of other things, the businesses, things during the pandemic, all those layoffs, people love to hate the Pagulas right now. And that original story that came out saying that the Pagulas want 100% taxpayer funded and as misleading as it was and as one-sidedly sourced as it was, it opened up all that scar tissue. And it really gave uh, PSE a, a hard-fought battle to get back to even in terms of the discourse on the subject. Because what happened after that original story ran? You had two, four, and seven, and every other media outlet going to a uh, elected official, putting a microphone under their chin, and saying, "What do you think of this?" The Pagula is asking for a hundred percent, which they hadn't done really. Uh, and of course, they're what are they to say? It's outrageous. And so now you have this. You know, so, anyways, there's a, an emotional component to this that is um, that is unfortunate. But it also, in some ways, can help get the deal done faster. But I think so far it has been used pretty nefariously um, by one side over the other. Uh, and it, it, it's gotten some headlines where it shouldn't have. Um, yeah, it's just it's but I think that in a perfect world, um, these negotiations have been done uh, a lot with a lot of work and a lot of um headway having been made before anybody knew that the negotiations were even taking place. Uh, and so it, it got off to a really bad start and it's, it's probably going to be uncomfortable uh, to cover this, or at least uh, as these, as these updates come out, uh, it'll probably still remain uncomfortable until the deal's signed. You know, and I think for me, Tim, where I'm then led to is this place of how they, I guess I'm searching for the, for the right words to say here, uh, how this has all been juxtapositioned on to the general public. I, I think part of the, part of the issue. Yeah, here, the public wasn't it, asking for a stadium update when that story ran. That, right. I mean, yeah, they would have been interested in it, but then all of a sudden there had to be this story, this big takeout about uh, look out. And then immediately right. after that, Seth Wickersham with his tweet and he throws Austin out there and everybody goes ape. Uh, because before they even call Austin City Council and find out that they don't even know what the hell you're talking about, right? We, we're not looking for a football team, so it, it yeah. So I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, yeah, it, I really where where I was coming back to on this and, and kind of my final follow up here, Tim, it, about this topic is just at times the the messaging maybe not being built around an understanding of the community when. Maybe I think and I think that's part of maybe some of the disappointment of the people is there was this feeling that this family who, although they're very rich, they seem very relatable. They're coming to Buffalo. They care about this city. And the good old days. The Right. Correct. Right. And somebody cares about us. And now it's I, I don't want to say that's a dose of reality, but the reality is revenue. It's, it's a, money. I mean, that is it's 180 that, degrees the other way. The people, you know, people, as I said, I'll say it again. I, and I know that I've used this phrase on another podcast and it got back to upper management at PSE and they didn't disagree with it. People right now love to hate the Pagulas. They look for excuses to hate the Pagulas. And so when their new spokesman, this guy who's from out of town comes in who they hire to help them with this campaign mm, says, look, you gotta, you gotta figure out if you, if uh, Erie County or he actually, he said the city of Buffalo needs to, and uh, the state of New York need to figure out if they want a, a football team. People saw that. And I'm like, <laughs> you, you, you can't say that, 
you know, even if it was a throwaway comment at the time. So people are just going to pick that out and say, here we go. One more reason. These people are stabbing us in the back. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's unfortunate how toxic it's gotten in that regard. Um, when it comes to uh, the Pagula's reputation in this town, they don't get they don't get enough of the credit uh, because of what's happening with the bills, because people can easily look at that and say, well, they didn't get it right with Rex Ryan and keeping Doug Whaley and, and Russ Brandon. They got lucky here, uh, but they take 100 percent of the blame when it comes to the Sabres. And uh, it's they need that's why they need to be very careful. And they need to when it comes to this this stadium negotiation, the different public updates that you need to give and uh, not letting the other side throw haymakers at you uh, or out of nowhere. You are listening to Food for Thought on the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network. I'm Bruce Nolan. That's Nate Geary. We are here with Tim Graham of The Athletic, and he has been filling us in on the comings and goings in regards to the Buffalo Bill Stadium. He is on the Thrive Fantasy hotline here on Food for Thought. Come prop up. On Thrive Fantasy this football season. Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. With Thrive, you can eliminate the countless hours of research and focus on only the top tier athletes that have had the biggest impact on the game. Choose 10 out of the 20 available player props to build your lineup. Each prop is assigned a fantasy value for both the over and the under based on how likely it is to hit. Hit the most props and rack up the most points to win a share of the prize pool. Thrive has over $140,000 guaranteed in prizes for the week one of the NFL and has awarded over $4 million so far. Thrive's featured $100,000 guaranteed contest is $20 to enter and first placed takes home $20,000. Use promo code BUFFBILLS. Again, that's BUFFBILLS, B-U-F-F-B-I-L-L-S. When you sign up today and you will receive 100% Instant first deposit match up to $100. Download Thrive Fantasy on the App Store or Play Store or by visiting their website, www.thrivefantasy.com. Sign up and prop up today. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. We are here with Tim Graham, and he's he's going to just go ahead and join us all the way until the end. All the way until the end. And so if you are in the comments section right now and you have questions for myself, you have questions for Nate Geary, you have questions for our esteemed guest, Tim Graham, now is the time, ladies and gentlemen. And while I am waiting for you to populate those questions, we are going to move on. And we're going to move on to a topic that we wanted to talk about for a while, and that is real football. We wanted to talk about real football. And now we actually have a game, a good game. One of the best season opening games I have seen recently and a game that a lot of people thought was going to be a blowout in the favor of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But Dak Prescott had none of that. He said, no blowout for you. No, thank you. 
even if my ball doesn't have quite the zip that mm -hmm. I want it to have, I'm still going to make this a game. So we're going to go around the horn here. We're going to go to Nate first. We'll go to Tim. We'll come back to me. Biggest winner, biggest loser from the game you just watched. Nate, take it away. Biggest winner. Uh, biggest winner has to be, I think, the Dallas Cowboys offense. Um, I know a lot of uh, folks on the Twitter bot yesterday were talking about the $90 million running back that they essentially ignored the entire game. And I say brava. Um, I say don't turn around and hand the ball off to your $90 million running back. It's your fault he's being paid $90 million. But in no way should you be turning around and, and, and running up – right at the middle against, I think, what is the best defensive line in football. Um, the biggest loser probably still has to be Mike McCarthy. I mean, the, the defense at times looked better yesterday, but I, I keep hearing these, these and seeing things on Twitter about Kellen Moore and the, Jerry Jones really loves Kellen Moore. And, you know, if, if he gets interest around the league for head coaching jobs next year, could they move on from Mike, Mike McCarthy just in order to keep Kellen Moore around? So, um, Mike McCarthy is sort of, uh, I think, maybe unfairly on the hot seat um, after just a season. But I think that's just the reality of the situation. That's part of the reason why when you're a head coach, you bring your own offensive coordinator in and you don't bring the guy the owner really loves because that's the guy that's going to end up taking your job. So, um, yeah, I think those are my winners and losers for me. But I, I also think everyone's a loser um, because at a certain point here, I'm just wondering like when Tom Brady is going to make me stop feeling bad about what I'm about to do at 30 years old. Um, I, you know, like I, I said this in my tweet earlier, like Tim, I, he makes me feel old. Um, what, what is, what does Tom Brady do to your overall? Like, do you go to bed and you think about like, is my wife, like I say this all the time, it's like if I'm to my girlfriend, if I'm not Tom Brady when I'm 40, like, are you still going to love me? Like, whoa, like how, how does any man feel fulfilled knowing that that man is out there just rubbing it all of our faces? Well, I, I just turned 50. So uh, that's in my rear view mirror. And I, I've already come to grips with what I will not be in life. <laughs> and uh, Tom yeah, Brady I, isn't one of them, Tim. No, I I'm okay with, <laughs> I'm okay with uh, how things have turned out. Uh, my biggest winner last night is Rob Gronkowski. Uh, he really showed us that wow. he has a lot left. People were wondering, in fact, in one of my fantasy leagues that I'm in, I took a look during the game last night. He was still a free agent. Uh, he was not drafted in our league, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, but his production has been down. Uh, and of course he took the year off and Tampa Bay has other tight ends. And so you wonder, well, what's he going to do? Well, he looked like all pro Rob Gronkowski last night, of course, two touchdowns, uh, eight catches, I think it was, um, Tom looks like he's really looking to him. Uh, and I think that that's just, he's one of my all time favorite players. Rob Gronkowski is, uh, I think he's the greatest tight end to ever play the game. So I, him being, uh, effective makes the game more entertaining. Uh, the biggest loser last night, Greg Zerline. Um, hmm. it was, it was, uh, a gong show in the kicking game. Uh, I mean, I guess kudos to him for, for making the, the one late kick, but, um, if he makes his kicks, I think we got a different game. Pete in the comment section says TJ Watt played 39% of his snaps in coverage in 2020. Good or bad game planning? I think quite frankly, it's just what you get when you get a very traditional 3-4, which is what the Steelers are one of the last bastions of that yeah. really old traditional 3-4. Keith Butler it will cling to that with his dying breath. And one of the things that 
three, four outside linebackers have to be able to do is drop into coverage. And that's a, that's always going to be a factor of that, whether they necessarily like it or not. If you remember correctly, when Rex Ryan came to Buffalo, one of the discussions was Mario Williams all of a sudden dropping in coverage. And we can all agree that was probably a misuse of his talents coming from the cold front with Jim Schwartz and the 4-3 defense that had all four of its down linemen elected to the Pro Bowl that year. I think that it's not a not really a reflection on T.J. Watt. It's simply a reflection of that's just what it is. And it's not a T.J. Watt thing. That was the thing with Bud Dubree. That was the thing with every yeah. single meaningful edge rusher that the Steelers have had while they have had a traditional 3-4 defense. I think one of the things that's interesting is we have a tendency to kind of forget narratives of the past that now become relevant. One of the things that was interesting when Mike Tomlin became the head coach of the Steelers, one of the funny narratives around that was, well, he's never coached a 3-4 before. He was a defensive coordinator in Minnesota. How is he going to blend his experience with 3-4? The answer is nothing. Nothing happened. They just kept doing the <laughs> things that Steelers have historically done. And I think that's one of the things you see is you see really great pass rushers who just have a chance to take a couple plays off and go backwards a little bit. Nate, any contributions on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that traditionally, if you want to talk about traditional what the Pittsburgh Steelers are, right, I think they, they are in the image of what I think they traditionally want to be, a team that has a ground-and-pound attack, a legitimate road grader running back, and on the other side, playing that 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 vaunted three four defense. And because, you know, Bruce, you, you mentioned how irregular re the rest of the league sort of probably you know stays within the guidelines of traditional three four. When TJ Watt drops back in coverage, that can be a bit of a mismatch for teams because if you're a quarterback, you're not thinking that TJ Watt's going to pick up his hand and backpedal and and, and move into a uh, like a, a the flat zone. And, and if you're a quarterback, you might take advantage or you might take for granted that T.J. Watt's just going to be going at your left and right tackle all afternoon. So, I, you know, it can be um, a bit of a, a, a nice little wrinkle, but 39% of the time it seems like astronomical to me. I have nothing to add. I like that. You guys are too smart. I can't. I like uh, I'm going to use Hold on, we've got shit talk about Josh Allen. What do we have? Uh, what, Bruce, what's this one? Keith Butler about Josh Allen. He did 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 he kind did he say a boo boo about Josh Allen? And now we have to be yeah, mad. Yes, about it. yes, he absolutely did. What he said specifically was, okay, if you want to run like a running back, that's fine. We'll then treat you like a running back. Which people are sitting here going, oh man, goodness gracious, like what a you know what a threat. And I'm sitting the way going, it should be. Absolutely not. This is not. This is not a threat. This is not a weird thing. This is the same thing that every single coach is telling their players behind closed doors when a quarterback breaks the pocket. Now they're a runner. They are no longer afforded the rule protections that a quarterback in the pocket is provided. This is the same thing everyone has said about Lamar Jackson fourteen times over the course of his career. It's this a mentality. It's a mindset it that the defense has to really be in to make sure that that quarterback doesn't do the old "I'm going to drift out of bounds right here." The defensive back lets up, and so then he, so then the quarterback zips up the sideline for five free yards, uh, or he cuts across the middle, and and you see that quarterback there. You're trained not to touch these guys in practice. They've been they've spent all their practice time not touching the quarterback, getting yelled at for getting anywhere near the quarterback. Now they see a quarterback running. They know what the NFL 
feels about its quarterbacks in terms of find where you can hit them, where you can't hit them. And I think that there's a like a stopper that happens on, on defenders' uh, head sometimes about hitting the quarterback because they know how important they are to the league too. Um, but then that's why you see quarterbacks break free a lot. Um, I, I, I don't want to say a lot. I, I don't know that I can quantify it, but you do see it on occasion during a game. A quarterback who, if, if he were a running back, would have gotten drilled uh, but instead, he because he can slide. You gotta you gotta hold up because in case he slides, you don't want to make contact there. There's all kinds of stuff that defenders have to constantly think about holding up when they see somebody in the number with the teens on their jersey. Uh, well, I guess you can't say that anymore because receivers wear that too. But anyways, it is a mentality. I, I have um, Tim. I, w- I want to set you off with this question. Um, because this was uh, written in my notes. I didn't tell Bruce that I was going to ask you this, so this is totally off off the beaten path here. And it's just it's about the Bills. It's fine. Um, how much – one of the most interesting storylines from this past year is the fact that Brian Dable and Leslie Frazier are both back in the coordinator position um, for, for the respective units on each side of the ball. What is your degree of worry that Brian Dable – if he didn't get a job last cycle, now I get that there's always this new crop. We're talking, I talked about Kellen Moore, right? Like he sort of represents the next crop of young play callers, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators. They're going to be in vogue. Like, do you see Brian Dable almost regardless this being his final year as the offensive coordinator in Buffalo? Or do you believe that there might be this, this, this level of staleness when, when a candidate gets in the cycle enough times we're talking about Eric B right? Like why doesn't sure. he have a job outside of the fact of the, the, the underlying race issue um, that exists there. But like, I, I wonder if there is a level of staleness for Dable in the head coaching cycle, because if he was getting a job, it had to be last year. I think anyways. Yeah. And, and the offers or the interviews didn't, weren't exactly flying around uh, for him last year, but some of that has to do with the fact that the bills made it to the AFC championship game and the rules that uh, that are in place. And obviously, you know, people want to fill those positions. They, maybe they didn't want to wait around to interview Brian Dable. So that may have hurt him. Um, I, I know that he still wants to be an NFL head coach, uh, that he's not given up on that. Um, it's um, it, it'll be interesting to see. I don't think that he his window is closed. But I think that the window, you know, people have had their chance to hire him if they wanted to. They haven't. However, when you have a quarterback like Josh Allen and a team that can go deep again, that adds to your body of work in a very significant way. This isn't somebody who um, had his great seasons five years ago as a coordinator or whatever. You know, he's got all those rings from being an, a position assistant not from having a high degree of, of uh, game day in impact. You know what I mean? Um, so, but he's still building that resume that the meat on his, the, the meatiest part of his background is still growing. It's still getting stronger or theoretically should be. I mean, with my expectations of what the bills are and Josh Allen and the offense are going to do this year, um, a guy who has, Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs at the controls, uh, he, he's at their control. Um, uh, yeah, I think that he could still add to it, but you made a great point, Nate, there with there's always other, the young hot guy we haven't heard of yet, because that seems how to be how it works. This, a young assistant is a quality control coach one day and five years later, five short years later, yeah. he's a head coach 
or a hot candidate, you know, Adam Gase, for instance. So the media machine uh, likes to likes to pump up the can the um, clients of certain agents when it comes to uh, coaching candidates. And it's funny because you see the media, some guy that you really aren't familiar with, and then all of a sudden he's the next hot thing. You remember when the Bills hired Doug Marone? All of a sudden, Doug Marone is the must-have candidate in the With NFL. With a 500 now. record in college, yeah. Yeah, like what the hell? You know, so there's and there's all kinds of those guys. So, yeah, Brian Dable. That's the that's the only thing. Again, word vomit. He's a known quantity. Um, so that's the discouraging part of it. But I think he still has an opportunity because of the fact that he's in his the best part of his career. He's still going through it, uh, and that is going to keep him alive. The fact that you can have a known quantity at an offensive position, which is so well thought of now in the NFL, bringing in someone who is offensively minded, who oversaw the development of an extremely raw quarterback and has recommendations from Sean McDermott and Bill Belichick and Nick Saban, you would think this would give him a leg up. But there's, like you said, there's always going to be a hot new name. Mr. Tim Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having Thanks for letting me do it. This is the second time that you have allowed me to suck up a large portion of your time about stadium stuff and Bill's stuff, and you've always been so gracious. So I can't tell you, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and spending it with us. Why don't you tell everybody what you got working on, what's coming down the park for you, the athletic. I know there's some changes. We talked about Matt Fairburn. Mm. Earlier this this episode, before you hopped on, we did a bon voyage to Marcel Louis-Jacques and to Matt Fairburn. So there's some changes at The Athletic. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, what you're working on, what's going on at The Athletic? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at ByTimGram, B-Y-TimGram, like a byline. Uh, what am I working on, on, on at The Athletic? Well, we're in, we're in flux. You know, we just lost Matthew this week. Uh, and, uh, we're going to be covering our first game without him on Sunday. And, uh, I'll imagine I'll write something off the game like I normally do, but my day-to-day job might shift a little bit. Uh, I think that uh, I'll feel obligated to, uh, help pick up some of that slack, uh, of Matthew's departure. I'm told I don't have to, but I, I, my guess is that I'll want to. And, uh, so maybe a little bit more breaking news stuff for me, a little more, uh, uh beat coverage, um, and then the usual long form stuff. Oh, that's still what they pay me to do. So um, hopefully people uh, who like my work to, uh, find that to be good news. Tim, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm grateful. Thanks, Tim. Take care, guys. Take care. I have, I have never had a conversation with Tim that I have not enjoyed. Not a yeah, single one. You know, uh, Tim is one of my... Um, closest friends in the media industry, mostly because of his selflessness to people that are younger coming through the position. And Tim graciously um, sort of extended his hand to me at a young age to help and mentor me. And those, those sort of people are, um, and, and how, how good he is at his job where those intersections meet between mentor and, you know, quality of work. Um, being so high for Tim, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. So I was really happy we were able to kind of talk through some of the stadium things um, as maybe a, a, just a mini distraction away from all the pregame coverage you're going to get over the next 48 hours um, and, and, and moving into Sunday, obviously. So this, this is a good little reminder that things are happening outside of the, uh, you know, the main show, which is Bill's football, which is on tap in, in, in two days here, man. I'm, I'm pretty excited. I'm excited too. I think the apt word that you used there was grace. 
And really, that's what it boils down to with Tim. You know, he doesn't have to show us any sort of kindness. He's not obligated us. He doesn't owe us anything. But yet he continually decides to show up. And really, that's what grace is. I mean, grace is getting is not getting what you deserve, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is not getting what you deserve. And we certainly don't deserve for him to be as uh, as forthcoming and as gracious to us as he is to be able to spend time with us and be able to let us in on some of the inside. I think he's a great uh, resource for a lot of different things. The stadium talk is absolutely one of them yep. as being the one who was the first person to break the Pagulas are buying the Buffalo Bills. So with that in mind, Nate, anything for the good of the cause before we head out here? Uh, I'm in Long I'm on. I, I keep saying that in Long Island. I'm on Long Island um, for the evening here, headed back home uh, in the morning. And uh, one of the things uh, that was unfortunate is I had some pretty shitty pizza. That's tough. You know what? When you go out of town and you say, I've got one sh- crack at this. I got one shot. Right. One opportunity. Right. Don't ruin it. That's all I want. Just don't ruin my trip. And then you have bad food and it's just... Yeah. Listen, you know what? Sometimes it's food for thought. Sometimes it's food for nightmare. But but we did it. Thank you all for joining us. I appreciate you being a part of this. Thank you for stopping by. And I hope you didn't leave hungry.